Well, I guess I will start, and as people come, we'll just integrate them as they come. Um, I know some of you. I'm Katherine Meyer. I'm from Ohio State University in the Department of Sociology and also the Department of Rural Sociology. And I've also, for the past um, eight years, been in the, I've been associate provost in the Office of Academic Affairs. And I work here at Marshawn and also at the Glenn Center. I say that so that you get some idea if you're from any of those organizations um, where I come from as background. Right now, I'm the um, program director at the National Science Foundation, and I think that's why you're here. My program director in sociology, but I'm talking on behalf of the social sciences. Although some of my slides say sociology, I'll just generalize beyond them. The slides are copyrighted, and that's why I happen to have the sociology part of them. How many of you are um, faculty, all right, and graduate students? And from economics, political science, um, sociology, <laughs> communications, psychology, history, linguistics. Okay, yeah, all right. Okay, good. So I'll just start out briefly. Um, we have a gazillion slides in, in typical federal form. We always have. Um, a lot of specifics to talk about, but I usually just focus on five major things. But the first thing I want to talk about very briefly is an overview of the, where the social and economic sciences and behavioral sciences fit within the National Science Foundation, um, because I found that really interesting myself when I first got there. You can see the things about when NSF was established and the areas in which you can get funding. There are seven directorates within um, the National Science Foundation, and one of them is devoted to social, behavioral, and economic sciences. All the others are natural and physical sciences. The um, SBE1 provides over 60% of federal support for all basic research that's done, basic social research that's done in the United States. And the National Science Foundation is a part of the executive branch of government. It's in the executive budget, and we're third in line in the budget behind the Department of Defense. So I think that's kind of interesting because it gives you some idea that Congress does care what happens at the National Science Foundation, and the National Science Foundation does care what Congress thinks about what's happening at the National Science Foundation. So that's part of the background. This is just um, an idea for you of how um, sort of flat, I guess, from a sociological perspective, the organization of the National Science Foundation is. The office of the director is the head of the um, organization, um, a presidential appointee. And um, after that, pretty quickly, you jump into the seven directorates. That's just sort of it. There's a staff. And then within the directorates, you have our directorate, which is one of the seven. And there are three divisions, social and economic, behavioral and cognitive. And then we also have the National Center for Science and Engineering Statistics. Um, moving along quickly, within the social, behavioral, and economic sciences, we have two divisions. And you can see the specialties that are included in there. Some are disciplinary. This is just social and economic, such as political science and sociology and economics. And the rest are interdisciplinary. OK, I'll just hold that thought for a minute. And the other group that we have are behavioral and cognitive sciences. And you can see all of those listed there. Um, again, multiple kinds of anthropology and linguistics, endangered languages, and again, 
um, social psychology is interdisciplinary as are developmental and learning sciences. Now this usually becomes a little bit overwhelming to people if you think about where am I going to send my proposals or where is my logical home. And I'd say two things about that. First of all, don't worry too much. Um, all of us, all sets of these people sit in, we have offices in a space of about double the size of this room and we see each other all the time. The setup is totally interdisciplinary. So we're as likely to talk about your proposal to someone next door or across the hall as we are to talk about it within our own discipline. And the plus of that is there's a lot of interdisciplinary attention on proposals even if you personally did not ask for it. So you don't have to agonize over whether or not you should send it to multiple places, which is something you can do. You can say, I want it to go to economics and decision risk and management sciences. But if you don't, the economist will still probably march it over to decision risk and management sciences. Second thing I want to say on that is if you are interested in doing something interdisciplinary, you need, should address the disciplines of the project that you're doing, all, both of them or all three of them. Sometimes I think people think, well, um, this is interdisciplinary because I'm doing a little bit of economics in here too. If you don't address economics literature, it doesn't play very well with the economics panels. So multiple disciplines, every discipline should be represented in your discussion of what you're contributing to the field and it should contribute to both fields. Um, this is just a sociology program but all of them have a similarity in the social sciences. We all have program officers. Um, we all look at theoretically grounded research. It has to have theory. This is not an agency that handles things that are specifically or particularly or solely applied. And there are a variety of methodologies that are appropriate. You will hear from people NSF only funds quantitative or NSF econ only anthro only funds qualitative or somebody only funds this. It really is not the case. Sometimes there's a little bit more, a little bit less of it, but they do fund every kind of thing. Um, and also from the macro to the micro level. So there are two competitions every year. There are two types of major competitions every year, and this is probably what you're thinking about. The regular proposals, which are for people who are faculty. Um, again, you have to have theory and methods. The dates are arbitrary. Those are sociology's methods. But in general, what everybody funds is data collection analysis, the cost of surveys or participant fees, assistance at the graduate or undergraduate level, summer salary and travel to go get data. I can ask, answer specific questions of you if you have those later, or you can stop me along the way. But that's the kind of general stuff that NSF funds. Typically, we give one to two years support, but people ask for three to four years support. That gives us a little latitude to reduce it to one to two years support. So um, you don't have to build in that latitude, though. Dissertation proposals. Again, the dissertation proposal, the person who gets the proposal is the faculty member. I want to underscore this because a lot of times faculty do not understand their roles in this. The faculty member is the principal investigator faculty member is uh, the person who ultimately has to submit it and the faculty member is the person who ultimately is responsible for the report to NSF that the work has been completed. So when you take on this project for your graduate students, keep that in mind. Um, also, um, the things that are funded for the dissertations are 
Um, similar, again, data collection analysis, what it costs um, if you have specific software your own department doesn't handle, data transcription, survey expenses, payment to subjects, and so forth. Um, I would say with dissertations, there are two things to keep in mind. One is if you're doing a dissertation, it isn't viewed very well if you want to um, have some other people do all your transcription and all your data collection for you. It's an assumption of data of dissertation level work that you actually are learning how to do those things yourself. So assistance is fine, but there is an expectation that you're heavily involved in the conduct of your project. We do get requests for people, you know, to have every, sort of basically all of that done. This is just a maximum for sociology for 10,000. Some of the others vary higher. I think we're the lowest on that. Okay, I'm going to mention other kinds of awards, and I'll go through them quickly. They're all available on the National Science Foundation website. I would encourage you to look frequently and um, carefully at the National Science Foundation website and see what's new and what's available. I would also encourage those of you who are faculty to ask your sponsored research officers to do that. Um, that really should be a good synergy in a university between the sponsored research officer and the research faculty that they keep you abreast of what is available. Um, <clears throat> these are some that I just kind of mentioned because a lot of times we don't know about them. The career award is for people in the first five years after their dissertation. Um, it's good for junior faculty to know about. Project really does have to last five years, and I think that's the hardest part of it. And it includes preparing courses. So you're both doing research and making those research bear fruit in courses that you're teaching. Um, the Minority Postdoctoral Research Fellowship is available every year. Again, look up, look for it. Um, it wants to increase diversity of researchers in the social sciences. There's a Graduate Research Fellowship Program that supports people in their first and second years. Again, look online to find out these specifics or call me or somebody like me to find out or your sponsored research office should have this information. I'm just going through these because there's so many of them. Um, these are two, these replace the earlier sugar for those who have been, been around for a while. One is the RAPID and the other is the EAGER. You're also noticing by now that there's an acronym for every possible way you could get money from the National Science Foundation. Lots of kinds of, of words. Um, RAPIDs have not been extremely popular. We've gotten a lot of requests, but often it means that the researcher is interested in doing something rapidly, not that the data are going to go away. If, you know, person doesn't engage. So it really has to be ephemeral data. You couldn't get it at any later time. Eagers, um, exploratory research, again, it's a bit of a challenge, but you can send that in. A lot of times people say it doesn't look that exploratory to me. Why don't you do a full proposal? But anyway, there are two things that you might be interested in trying. Um, these are other things that I'm not sure Ohio State takes as much advantage of as some other universities do. Um, you can do IGERTS for graduate education, and that's within your department. You have that kind of a grant, and you can do training graduate students through IGERTS. Um, some universities take great advantage of that process. And we're lucky because the um, IGERT program for the entire National Science Foundation, including the sciences, is run out of the social, behavioral, and economic sciences. So our folks do understand what graduate training looks like. The research experiences for undergraduates, there are two categories to that. You can have a site, which means you ask for a group of students to work through for you during the summer or at other times. Um, and, or you can just have one on your own grant. 
and Craig and I are big advocates of using that. We've added as much as, I think, $36,000 to grants that we've done by getting six undergraduate students to help us with a lot of work. I can give you more specifics on that if you want. But I really like the REUs. Um, here's some others. There's the partnership if you have international collaborators. Um, look that one up. Um, the next one, um, if you have outcomes of science into that, they, if you have science research and engineering research and you want to see what the outcomes are. For example, if you have been studying um, the development of graduate students in political science and you want to know if as a consequence of that there's been any policy outcomes in that kind of training that you've done. That would be a typical kind of thing that you could get. You're looking for policy outcomes of something that has been done in science and engineering, including your own work. Again, these are all on the NSF website. And these are then every year, there are specific themes for um, the National Science Foundation and for SBE. So those that I just talked about are around pretty much all the time. As I said, they change their names. Sometimes they're sugar, sometimes they're rapid, sometimes they're eager. But if you read the content, you can tell it's sort of, oh, there's that grant I've heard about before in a new form. The themes for 2012 and 2013 usually means that that person that you saw identified as the director has come up with some ideas that he or she wants to see the whole agency, the whole foundation, focus its attention on. And so um, Suresh's interests have been sustainability. Um, he has come up with a set of awards called Creatives um, in response to the federal, some people in the um, Congress saying that there's a lot of good research out there, but the National Science Foundation and Nas National Institutes in Health and all just don't happen to notice that, and it just takes too long to work through the regular panels, so maybe we could just more quickly move along um, and do something very creative, um, and that is, requires two directorates. So political science with TIS would have to be doing something with a chemist and apply to both. I'll get into the specifics of that a little bit more later. Cybersecurity is a big issue also, and so cyber infrastructure, and they are distinct. When people hear that we're doing cybersecurity, sometimes they think, oh, that's all they're doing. That's not true. We're also looking, the, the um, organization is looking at cyber infrastructure as well. Now, um, one thing that we often hear from principal investigators or a, an approach to principal investigators, and probably I have taken as a principal investigator to the National Science Foundation, um, we hear people sort of, we deal with people in sort of one of three categories sometimes when things aren't going so well for them. One is that they think, they, sim they say, I simply don't have time to get all this done. You have too many requirements, and so I just gave you what I gave you, and that's my proposal. The other one is that we receive, as one of my colleagues says, daily flowers. There are just endless calls, and can I meet with you, and could we do this together? And the answer to most of those is usually no. But that's another approach. And the third approach is, what is NSF funding this year? If I just figure out what it is, I can link my money to that, or I can link my proposal to that. That's a lot of work. Keep in mind that the National Science Foundation really is interested in its core programs, too. 
these are other things. If you're what you're working on and if you're working in the discipline of linguistics and you happen to have a link to something here, great. It just means that the linguistics program can tap into this money to help them pay to cover your grant. But it doesn't raise your grant above the merit review process in any other way. So you don't need to chase after whatever is the latest initiative on the part of NSF. Make sense so far? Okay. So these are some of the things of translation of what we've been doing with sustainability. These are the NSF things on the side and on the other side, um, understanding energy use and behavior. We have a lot of people studying that, um, integrating data with environmental data and so forth. It's just a quick one on that. So, and that just means if we see that your proposal has that, we'll go after this kind of money also for you. Here's the creative one. Again, it must be interdisciplinary, must be transformative, and must be supported by two intellectually distinct NSF divisions or programs. There's only so much money on this, and remember, there are six directorates that are not in the social and behavioral and economic sciences, so sort of figure that. And this is the science um, computational one. And another computational one. I can come back on these if you're interested. And I'll just move on now, um, stopping from that, to talk specifically about your own proposals and your own working on them. But let me pause so far and ask if this is helpful so far, if there's anything. Yeah. There's a question. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about transdisciplinary research mm -hmm. versus interdisciplinary. And I was wondering, where is that in and that? It's fine. They're fine with the term also. No, no. Most of the time it becomes talked about as interdisciplinary. Because of the program structure, there's no transdisciplinary unit to handle it. They are mostly interdisciplinary. But people are fine with that, and the same with international and transnational. Be fine. Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Other questions so far on just programs in general? Yeah. Yeah, this is sort of a question of wiring. I'm sure I could figure this out from looking at the calls. But um, for the international training initiative, there were a couple of them. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do those require a partnership with degree granting institutions as part of it, in terms of, or is that more open-ended as to who the partnership would be with? You don't mean that. You don't mean the graduate education and research. Yeah, well, it could be there. Because the graduate fellowship can yeah, do that there too. There you go. The partnership in international research and education, which I wasn't even aware existed, uh, maybe because I just never paid attention. No, they don't need to be other universities. No. Yeah, it could yeah. be institutes or places that do research. Right. Following on something. Right. The, in Europe, a lot of places are set up freestanding from universities. Some places. Right. Right, right. The thing that helps me most address a lot of these kinds of issues at NSF is this. I keep in mind that the six sciences um, that they are thinking about the most, not that they don't love the social, behavioral, and economic sciences, but the ones they think about the most are the other six, because there are six of them. And if you think about how research is done in those fields and in those disciplines with labs from one country to another and so forth, it gives you a pretty good idea of what is possible. Okay. So I just kind of think about how, 
you know, the chemist will be linked from one country to another. Sometimes it's an institute, sometimes it's not. Okay, and then um, everybody knows about the grant proposal guides, that you, the NSF document that's huge, where you can find each one of these and its expectations. And in general, I would just say if it's not specific, then just don't ask for specificity. Just be, it means that there's flexibility in what's being expected. Does that make sense? So if there's not a rule, don't think there's one you just haven't found out. There might be no rule. So you can always give that a try. That would be somewhere where you would call the program officers that you're interested in though and see if they're interested in that kind of thing. And in general, we recommend that, I'll get to that as now, it's sort of, we're leading into that. Okay, so um, th this is really, um, I don't know, I think whoever made this up, I don't think ever really did proposals like the rest of us do where we kind of, you know, couple months in advance, we think, oh, goodness, we do have to do something quickly. So I'll, I'll go through that quickly. But um, let me just say that foresight is great. Um, you need to know in advance what you're going to do. And um, again, I don't know, this stuff seems out of order to me. Let me move over here and go here first. All right, so talking about writing a proposal, which is something um, I think most of us are interested in. Here there are a couple steps to the process which I, that I think make a big difference. The first is to really address and talk about ahead of time how you're going to address with your colleagues or whatever. Um, the intellectual merit, which means you are dealing with the literature and you're contributing something to the literature and you have a good expectation of what that contribution might be. And then the broader impacts and that means that who beyond uh, what you find that's specific to that literature that you just talked about is going to be interested in, in this. Does it have policy implications? Are there other fields that would also be interested in these same findings? So intellectual merit, broader impact are the two things on which merit review is based. Um, and I'd say in preparing that is a way you want to think about the whole process. What am I adding to the literature? Um, am I handling multiple literatures? What do I expect to find? And um, you know, who else would care about this once I finish? So that part is major. Um, the things about you know having a short title and all those kind of things, you can clean that up after we've said this is a good project. But once you've decided what you want to do and um, why you think we should care about it and why you think Joseph and Josephine um, public should care about it, it's not a bad idea to contact the program officer that you think you're going to submit to and um, send them two pages of what you think you're doing and, and, why, and see if they like it. Now, um, again, a lot of times people will call the program officer and the response they get is send me two pages. So you can just jump over that step and send two pages. Again, avoiding, um, I'm mentioning this particularly on dissertations, a lot of times people who send in dissertation things are talking a, a great deal about um, why they want to do this and what this is all about, but not being very specific about how they plan to accomplish it and what we're going to get out the other end of funding that. So you need all those pieces in place. So, but in the two-pager, give people an idea of what you're going to do, why we should care, um, you know, how you think you can accomplish this, and 
and what we will get out of it. And then see if they like your idea. And you'll, uh, the feedback there you'll get from the program officer is usually really helpful. And if you haven't done those things, you will get pretty much back what our form letter is, which basically says what I just said. You have to outline the intellectual merit and the broader impact. So you can skip that step, too, by putting them into the two-pager when you send it. But begin that process right away. The second thing to begin um, right away is to get institutional review board permission, whether or not you think you're going to get this grant. Send your things into the IRB if you have human subjects involved, because it takes a long time. Your proposal will be reviewed without IRB approval, but it will not be funded without IRB approval. Why should you care? Because if your IRB approval takes so long to get, that you're out of the funding cycle, you're out of funding for that year. You're not going to be able to get it for a whole other year. So that does make a difference. So IRB approval is um, important early. And contact your sponsor research office early. Ultimately, they submit the proposal. And I've said this a few minutes ago. I don't mean to be repetitive. But the grants go to Ohio State University. And then Ohio State University basically subcontracts with the principal investigator. If it's a dissertation award, that principal investigator is basically subcontracting with the graduate student. The responsible unit is the university through its sponsored research office. So if you default in any way, the sponsored research office has to figure out what to do. They get somebody else to take your place. They give the money back. Um, if you do not have a final report in, ultimately the sponsored research officer has to do that, they very quickly find the person responsible. I should add that um, that happened last summer when I was dealing with someone and the principal investigator was gone and the graduate student was gone and I said, well, you're just going to have to do it as a Spencer research officer and they found that right, somebody right away to write that, you know, your final report. But ultimately the money is there. So um, you want to have early contact with them, tell them it's coming and they help you with your budget. So um, the only other thing I want to say about the, the sponsored research office is, the, and the reason I'm saying that, is that you do submit through Fastlane, but you personally do not submit through Fastlane. Your sponsored research officer submits through Fastlane. And then one other thing about the sponsor, that's why you can't like call on Saturday night or email me on Sunday morning and say, oh, I'm missing the deadline if I don't get it in and I've tried Fastlane all day. It's just like you have to wait till your sponsored research officer can do that. Um, the only other thing I want to say about the sponsored research office is that if you need an extension, this is something you haven't even gotten your funding yet, but if you need a one-year extension on your grant, that's handled locally, also through the sponsored research office. The National Science Foundation's view is once we have given the money to that university, the university is up to, um, is in charge of handling actually how it's allocated. Now keep that in mind for a lot of things that I've already said. Some things I can't go on the record for, but your university is responsible for how that money is allocated once we give it. So you can keep that in mind for your expenditures. Okay. Um, The budget is important, and of course, the budget justification is important. And the only other thing I'll say about submitting um, your proposal is there's a, a section where you're asked to suggest um, referees or reviewers. 
do it. People think, is this going to hurt me if I suggest reviewers? It doesn't hurt you at all. We get typically about 200 proposals a session. There are two of us. We have to send each proposal out to six people. We are looking for 1,200 reviewers. Anybody you suggest to us is definitely helpful. So just keep in mind that. Send people. They can't be people you have conflicts of interest with. On the flip side of that, regarding conflicts of interest, especially for those of you who are faculty and do do reviews, a conflict of interest really means, of course, that you would benefit by someone else's getting this um, grant so that that could mean that you're on another project with the person or you're writing with the person. The other thing that it means is that you personally um, have received money or could receive money from that. So if you run a little survey research center, you're asking for a grant and you want to hire your own survey research center to do the actual survey, that would be a conflict of interest. So you want to keep that, those things in mind. And, mm -hmm. I will, sure, sure. Um, and the other thing I would just in general say if you're a reviewer is if you have written a review and we ask you if you have a conflict of interest, if you're not sure, call the program officer because if you put on there, I might have a conflict of interest because Harry and I were somewhere together before. We're a little more reluctant to keep your review just because you've already said that, that you, you feel you might. So if you just are not sure, call, ask, and then, or decide you do or don't, and then just act on that. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and for those of you who are principal investigators, um, if you review, um, the foundation feels more positively about you, and if you serve on panels, that's true as well. I'm not saying that's a requirement, but if you always decline any opportunity to review for the National Science Foundation, and then you come in and say you want $5 million, it's a little less little less um, popular, and this thing seems to have gone off. Jason, it happened to you? Did you kick it, or it just escaped? Jason, it stopped working. Because I got too far away. Oh, I have to do it here. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Yep, work. Um, the data management plan is something um, that graduate students is probably not new to you, to faculty. It's, um, I would say, something that has been around at the National Science Foundation for a long time. You're supposed to share your data. Um, the faculty had different interpretations of what that meant, sharing your data, making it accessible to the public. So now the National Science Foundation is actually requesting two pages of how you plan to manage your data once you're finished. I personally like it because it gives you two more pages to write your methodology on basically at the end. But it, um, you're supposed to make accessible to other people um, your data, um, how you coded things. Um, so your data does not consist of simply I used census data. Uh, what's the metadata you use to aggregate it or to change it or to create um, indices out of it or to parse it in any kind of way so that somebody else could replicate your work. And then you have to save it for a while. I was mentioning to Hugh earlier, some universities, for example, Purdue, their library has taken on the archiving of faculty data or student data. 
Um, and so you might ask our library here to do that. Or um, a lot of people park their data at ICPSR, where they tend to keep it for five years, but you do pay a cost for that. Anyway, I can go into particulars on that. But your data do have to be available to other people. Um, if you have very, um, we can talk about whether you have data where people can be identified or not. Yeah. Does it have to be publicly available, or can I just say I'll make it available to my friends if they ask, but uh, not make it publicly available? It depends on how your particular panel review, views something like that. In sociology, that doesn't play very well. And I sit in, and when I just talk about sociology, realize because of all this co-review, I sit in on economics, I sit in on the linguistics, I sit in on political science, not for everything, but for the ones where we have the same interest, anthropology and so forth. And um, making it too hard for other people to get to your data is, is not a plus. It doesn't mean you won't get the grant. It means that somebody will say you have to make your data more accessible in order to get this grant. So I, I, none of these are like um, deal breakers at the first go round. Um, but a good data management plan usually shows the person has thought it through. But I think you have to realize ultimately somebody is going to ask you that question and so you need to have a good answer for that. Um, it's a public good. The federal tax dollar is paying for it um, and it, that's sort of the, the thinking on that. You can look at all those things in the New York Times and to see why we care. Um, and I think your question, Hugh, addresses the, f the third thing there. Does the data management plan address how third-party access will be managed while preserving um, institutional reward confidentiality, security, intellectual property, and other concerns? You just need to address it in some way. Okay, um, the budget. Um, people worry about the budget, and rightly so. Again, as I mentioned before, the sponsored research officer is the one who ultimately submits the budget. My experience here is they help you a lot. If they think that's not allowed, they sort of take it out when you put it in before you ever get very far. But, um, you know, a reasonable budget makes good sense. Um, I guess that's all I need to say there. There's an awful lot of conversation there we can have separately if you want. I want to talk a little bit about the re review process because I think people don't fully understand that. I certainly didn't. Um, merit review process is what the National Science Foundation has. Um, it has become so interesting to people around the world that at the National Science Foundation this fall, and I'm really excited about this, we're having um, people from other national science boards from around the world come to talk about the merit review process because their estimation of it is that it is the best and fairest way to give out funding from the government coffers. So it's going to be an exciting um, discussion to see what other nations do and um, some of them are in great admiration of the way the U.S. is doing this particular thing. It involves a couple steps. You make a submission to the program officers through Fastlane. Um, conflicts of interest are screened out at the front end. It takes very careful um, screening. The um, proposal has to follow format, no, cheap, no cheating on the type, trying to go to 10 or something so that people can't really read it. Um, has to meet all those and then it moves to the program officers who send it out for peer review. This is not true for dissertations. Dissertations don't go for external review. But the, um, the other ones do, the regular proposals and almost all these other things except creative. Um, when 
the peer review, typically we send out to six people, hoping we'll get three external reviewers. And then when it comes back for panel, two or three panelists read it also. So every proposal per se gets six, 12 eyes, six sets of eyes on it um, to, to talk about it and rank it and go in and out and so forth. All of that is advisory to the program officers who ultimately decide how to allocate the budget. Um, the thing I like about the NSF approach is that it is not um, the same as a journal review approach. It is very clear that anybody who makes entree to the system at all, um, everything we want to tell that person is to help them to re-enter the system if they don't get funding the first time and to take account of what the reviewers had said. So there's no, you know, reject, you're out of here. There's also really not revise and resubmit, because that's a commitment of funding that another panel may not like. So you really do re-enter the competition. We do tend to use a couple of your former reviewers, and of course the program officers remember having seen it before. But I would say apply often, you know, fixing things along the way, but apply often. Don't feel like, oh, well, they rejected it and they're never going to take mine because it's qualitative research or something. That really is not the truth. So there's this approach to how can we help this person improve what they've done. You may get a rev few reviews that don't <laughs> seem to have quite that tone. But typically, if something is not appropriate, if it's a little too harsh or something like that, there are no Simon Cows in the process. We redact that kind of information from anything that you would receive. So its aim is to help you to work on the proposal and make it better. So submit often, submit the same thing if you've gotten feedback on it. Um, the other part of it then is a certain mix, and this is the other, other part of it. Um, program officers have to manage, I call it an allowance, they refer to it as a budget, but it's not a full budget. You have a certain amount of money you can spend on proposals per, per year. And in all of that, program officers are keeping track of are we spending on the diverse issues that are present within the discipline? We're not giving it all here. Um, are we keeping account of um, people at various ranks so that we have some kind of diversity that it's not just people who've always gotten money for the past 20 years that are getting funded again? So we also keep an eye on whether we have both smaller and larger institutions applying for the funding, anything else that as a social scientist, you could cut or dice it by um, are things that we're keeping track of. So th that's another reason to resubmit. You know, you might have been the 15th one on that topic in a given year, and the, the, um, the portfolio would not look so good um, otherwise. Is there oversight of the program officers? Yes, it goes on to the program director, who's one step up in charge of social behavioral and economic sciences, and that person makes the program officer make a case for why he or she wants to fund these and not these. Um, we document an awful lot. That's one thing is part of the federal system that is a bit overwhelming. It's not only do we tell the person what needs to be fixed, but we justify our explanation of what needs to be fixed in something that is only seen internally. And the panel also who meets and talks about the proposal justifies its decisions in terms, there's a person who writes up each one 
who is a member of the panel. So being on the panel is a lot of work. But the merit review process is really thorough, almost too thorough. But um, it, it really does touch all the bases as far as getting your work done. So, um, you know, I think those are all good things to keep in mind, that you have a lot of eyes looking at it, um, that there's more that they're taking into account than just the pure merit of your approach, and that um, you should keep coming in again if you like your idea, and um, particularly if it needs to be fleshed out a little bit. So I hope that's um, helpful. People want to know sort of where should I apply or what kind of things are being funding, funded. The abstracts of all the past proposals are available online. You can search for your discipline and see what's been funded in the past five years, past year, so forth, to see if that's kind of going to work for you. Um, again, this is the intellectual merit. Are you contributing something? Um, contributing something usually means you're adding a hypothesis that advances the literature and not people have found this to be true in the United States. Let me see if I can find it that it's true in Germany also. Yes? I'm uh, sorry, this isn't directly related. That's all right. If you're uh, applying for any of these things or any such funding, uh, can you do that if you have uh, other fellowships or funding mm -hmm. or if you have also your other federal funding? Absolutely, and you can also have other NSF funding. There is a part on the proposal um, that you submit that you have to put in um, pending, including the one you're just now submitting, and other funding. And it's a very good idea to make each project you do very discreet, different, okay, even though maybe you're working with the same data set, and then make it clear um, what the National Science Foundation is paying for. So, um, for example, we do not and I really don't think any NIH or, any, or the college even would be too interested in your saying, you know, I'm doing a survey and I've already collected 70% of the data. Would you help me pay for the other 30%? Well, probably not because we want credit for something unique. All right, so um, my advice to my young graduate students is usually when you're thinking about your dissertation, think about the different parts of it that you need to do. Are you studying England and the United States? Look for some funding for England. Look for some funding for the United States. Are you asking different questions? Are you going to do a macro piece and a micro piece? Are you going to do um, interviews as well as use demographic data? Okay, look for funding for the demographic data. Look for funding for the, all right? And you know once the money's all in the pot, you just do it for the whole project, but you have to make it clear what's distinct. And if you don't, we come and say to you, what, what, are, you, what are we getting out of giving you this extra money? other than that you're finishing the project that you probably could finish without us. Okay. Um, yeah, these are things. I don't, I don't like this too much. This says what's not so good about proposals. We can talk about that if you want, what's, what proposals we see that aren't good, but I'll just skip through that. And this is the be persistent stuff. And so now you've asked questions along the way, but I'll ask you if you have any additional questions or particular questions. Yes. Mm -hmm. that, um, does that suggest that one should automatically try to fit into, or not a director, but a, a division, um, that suggests that one should automatically shoot for one of the interdisciplinary ones? Or, for instance, as a communication professor, if I have a problem that is relevant to sociology, can I apply to sociology, or how do I 
the degree makes no difference. Addressing the literature makes a big difference. Um, a lot of times, though, people from communication actually are addressing some of the disciplines that fall into the interdisciplinary field. So some of them are, um, you know, are doing things about um, the science of technology and society. Um, they're talking about how people communicate using this technology and the outcomes or the way that that's impacted by the social environment. So that's a whole field right there. Um, decision risk and management science, I wanted to mention again. Um, that used to be, when I went there, I kept thinking it was only disaster research, but that is not the case. They're doing an awful lot of things about how people make decisions and their willingness to take risks. It comes from both business school, but there's a lot of communication stuff in there. All the cyber ones, the whole cyber section, um, is dealing with the newer forms of um, communication that takes place in and through networks or in and through various kinds of tweets and Twitters and text messages and so forth. Social psychology may be your best home, too, because you may be looking for those kinds of social processes about communication. So a lot of communications things are funded. And again, if you're going to work with somebody else and they're from another discipline, then you can go together. Does that help? Yes. So, yeah. And that would be the same would be true for the students. But if you're going to apply somewhere, address their literature. And that's also true if you're going to do decision risk and management sciences. Sort of explain to them why yours fits in. I think the biggest thing I personally learned about writing grants that get funded is that and this was back when I was starting to get grants, and Craig as well, that you realize that the panel each read 20 proposals that are 15 to, and 17, really, because the two pages each of um, type, you know, type or product that they have to read. So that's a lot of pages, all right? And then the easier you can make it for them to know that you are um, heading somewhere that's interesting and that you're going to have a product, the more yours stands out. And even if it doesn't stand out for funding, the flaws stand out, and sometimes that's what you need to know as well. But you know, if, it's, if you're talking about intellectual merit, say intellectual merit, call the section intellectual merit, and say something as specific as, this is the literature, this is what I am adding to the literature in education, even though your area is communication, right? right? So help them know that there's a product. And usually um, what we've learned with our own proposals is, um, I think Greg and I would, would say this, is that we also tell you what the product will be. At least it's, we think it's going to be a paper that's going to be on this topic, and we can turn that out within three years. It's the people who sort of vaguely think someday they'll get something out of gathering this data that doesn't go so far. Does that help? So, and you know, also make it readable. Some people give us one paragraph that goes on for all 15 pages, and people don't talk about that real kindly in panel. Raise their eyes out. Yes? No, they're just for sociology. So you have to check for your own. When you go on the National Science Foundation, you can go into the division that you're interested in. If you're not sure, just, you know, there's a search, so you just put in um, linguistics and see when their dates are. 
dates are viewed differently, and this is what you need to check with your own um, program. Some are target dates, and some are drop-dead dates. From the sociology perspective, the date is a drop-dead date. Um, we do make exceptions. I shouldn't say that too broadly, but we will give you a few extra days. And for some others, they'll take them much longer. It, to me, it varies directly with the size of the program. The reason we have drop-dead dates is that we have to take those 200 proposals and get reviewers for them. And if you're sort of out of the cycle, it's hard to say what might happen you know, to your proposal. It's just, where did this come from? Because we have to keep them much more moving along as a group. Whereas if you're with an organization or a program that gets fewer, they can be more special. But if you think you're going to be late and just a little late, call the program officer and ask for permission to submit late. Okay, so there, it's, it's not a drop dead all the time. Linguistics, I'm not sure. I can't remember. I think they're drop dead. I'm not positive. Yeah, but I don't know whether that's where they, when they'd like to have them by or that if you turned it in on the 14th, it's late and they won't consider it. So you'd have to check that. Yeah, and with a lot of those details, you don't want to just talk to somebody else that you've met on campus because it really is particular to your program officer and how he or she decided to handle the workload that comes their way. Those kinds of things are. You don't have to do that, no. The people who read the dissertation grants are the panelists. And so you don't need to suggest any. You also cannot do interdisciplinary dissertation proposals. I mean, you can do an interdisciplinary dissertation proposal, but you can only, we don't share them across mm -hmm, in the same way. So they just say, stay internal. Um, there are a lot of things that you can do locally that, um, if we have time, I'll mention too. Are we doing okay? Um, right now, as I'm here speaking to all of you, um, my colleague in sociology is up at the, in Massachusetts. The University of Massachusetts gets a huge amount of social, behavioral, and economic science funding because they apply a lot. But it's not just UMass. A, a whole bunch of the colleges in that area got together. and. Um, She's making a presentation today, but also in advance of that, what they've done is have their graduate students write proposals and critique each other. They're having like a workshop on that as part of the day. So that's not a bad idea to get it out there and have other people look at it. I don't know, you could set something up here at Mershon or whatever with um, critiquing other people's proposals. And, and in general, get it out there and let people read it before you send it off. Mm -hmm. How important is uh, student support in SBS proposals? Will someone just apply for summer money or the, the grant request or proposal seems to suggest that they really want you to uh, put in money for uh, It's very well looked on, very well looked on. Part of the broader impact is that you're training the next generation of scientists in the pipeline. And so um, having graduate research assistants is looked upon quite well. Um, and there's a place where you put in their cost, and then there's, the, there's a place where you put in their tuition also. Okay, um, 
the thing about using undergraduates is that there, you know how each university puts um, an institutional amount of money. I call it a tax, but what's the right word for that? You know, they charge you to take care of it. Ohio State charges overhead. the overhead. Yeah, the overhead. Um, for the undergraduates, that you put them on a line where they're not counted into your overhead. So the money you get for them, you don't lose anything from. So the undergraduates are a separate location. Um, working with other universities on collaborative proposals, let me say a little bit about that. Those are a good way to go. Um, we've been, they're a fair amount of work. Um, Craig and I and others, Tom, have been involved in those. And working across institutions is, is difficult. Um, one thing that I think is important is that if another institution wants you to work with it as a consultant or a collaborator, it's to your advantage to be a collaborator as opposed to a consultant um, in terms of the credit that you get for doing the work. A consultant is, is not listed in the National Science Foundation thing as receiving a grant, whereas you are. And when, we're when I speak to smaller colleges, um, I usually encourage them to try to go for the collaborator status because they tend to be in the situation where other places will say, well, you can just be a consultant on ours or we'll give a subcontract to your university to let you work on this project. And that doesn't advantage the smaller university. I'm mentioning that in case some of you go to smaller schools. You're interested, you would be better off being a collaborator on those grants than just being um, a consultant. So, you know, that, that's a, a piece to consider there. Um, as far as all these words that I've said, summary, that summer, summer this and summer that. Um, keep in mind two things that I'm saying officially, what the National Science Foundation is giving salary for, um, but also, once it leaves the National Science Foundation with your department chairs and so forth and so on, you can figure out how you're going to spend that. So we personally do not mind if you use it in the winter as opposed to in the summer or whatever. Just, um, it's just a category called summer salary. But the National Science Foundation does not pay you to be off, or uh, does not buy off your time. Does not buy off your time. Let's see if I can think of anything else. Just recently, um, I gave a presentation to sponsored research officers. They come in as a group to Washington, D.C., and um, representatives from different foundations and funding organizations come and speak to them as a group. So we told them sort of many of the same kinds of things that I just went through um, with you now, but they're real eagerness in the process and their eagerness to get to know all the principal investigators and all is admirable. And I think, um, in fact, often they end up not being as appreciated as, or as helpful as, as they could be because we wait till the last minute to bring them into the cycle. So if you start early with the sponsored research officer, they really do know an awful lot of things. They can help you through the grant proposal guidelines. They know how to do budgets. And they have to do your budget, actually, but they can also help you with other kinds of things and suggestions about where to apply. So, do you have one specifically for Mershon, and a sponsored research officer, or does no, everybody no, just go no, through no, the? Uh, 
well, yes, yes, but I don't think he fully realized the first time. Um, and it turns out it's not Lori Rosenberg or Mr. So, actually, yeah. But I just met this person actually in the fall. Mm -hmm. The medical yeah. sciences use their sponsored research officers much more than we do, and I think it's because they're yeah. more used to relying on people in general. Yeah. But they're also good in telling you this data management plan is not going to fly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, because they've seen the ones that fly. They get them back, you see, once you propose it, and it gets turned Most of the people here probably use it. Yeah. 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 Great. Right, and I think we tend not to use them because despite all these well-laid plans, we end up doing our proposals sort of at the 11th hour to try to get them in, and you forget that there's that step there. But that's the other piece of it. Um, I hope you saw through, the, as I was talking about the merit review process, it takes a really long time for your proposal not only for you to start it and get it into Fastlane, but it takes a long review process. We don't promise you anything before six months. So if you're getting a dissertation proposal, the year that you are starting your dissertation and you want to be out the same year and get the money the same year, it probably isn't going to happen. You need to be thinking that 18 months to 24 months ahead of time about what you might like to propose so that you have a chance to put it in and um, see how it goes, to fix it and resubmit it, you know, if necessary. And um, I think if you do that, we all know you don't exactly know what your dissertation is going to be on the day you put your foot in the door here. But about two years into it, remember, you're always doing research. And I just think some of it happens to end up being your dissertation. But if you think about your career that way, I'm always doing research. I'm always looking for a proposal. I'm always looking for a project. Um, that's what I'm training for. And along the way, I just happen to get my degree because I'm always working on all these projects. So be putting in often. Um, your, um, your advisor has to certify that the dissertation does seem to be a possibility for you and that the end is in sight. But I mean, that can be a, a little farther off. So if you apply next October, you will see that money probably in March of 2013. <coughs> okay. Mark, don't most of the programs that do dissertation improvement do this twice in a 
They do. We've just moved to once this year, but I'm not sure how much longer we're going to be able to do things twice a year and where there's even some discussion of all things being once a year. So, but both regular and... Must it be in the summer? Probably, yeah, probably it would be once a year. I don't know. Usually, um, but sub summer submission <coughs> means November, December review. Remember, and you find out in January. The other thing is we often have a particularly students phone us, so if you're an advisor, this is something to keep in mind too, that they had heard that they had done what we had asked them to do. They had heard they were getting funding, and yet they don't have the money yet. Your sponsored research office gets the information about whether or not you were funded. And sometimes when they get busy, because they have huge workloads, they don't specifically tell you right away. So instead of calling the program officer, who's more likely to say, we sent it down to the Division of Grants and Agreements about six weeks ago, just call your sponsored research office and see if they've heard. And they can call the Division of Grants and Agreements to see where it is in the process. And that actually may bump it up a little bit. If somebody has a pile like this and somebody's called, chances are they'll approve that one and send it on. But the other thing is, and this is true for regular grants and for your dissertation grants. Once you have heard that you are being funded by the program that you applied to, and there is something that, that says to that effect, you know, we're really happy with your proposal. You've asked for this amount of money, and we're cutting you down to a tenth of what you asked for, but, you know, carry on. And um, if you get your budget back to us, and we're waiting for your human subjects thing, and da-da-da, and then you send all that in and they say, okay, we've received all of your materials and we're moving it ahead. Most, spon most universities, most sponsored research officers, from that point on will give you 90 days grace of spending. So you can right away go with that email that you have and say, I've gotten a grant. You can say to your dean or to your sponsored research office, I've gotten this grant and I'd like to have the money advanced so I can begin my field work. And they will do that. So Ohio State typically does that. They'll let you spend your money three months before it actually comes through to them. Does that make sense? Because they know it's coming. So they just advance you that. But people are really, I mean, you know, we'll get phone calls from graduate students every now and then who say, I can't start my research. You know, I've got to go. It's, I, I said I was going in April. I have to go in April. And, you know, ask your university. They'll, let, they'll pay for you to go in April and get the money back in June, and they're usually fine with it. So... That's something to keep in mind. Is this an accurate statement relatively still? I used to tell graduate students who are thinking about writing CMSF that for the dissertation improvement board that the odds of getting them just generally are much higher than for a moment than another CMSF. We fund about 50% dissertation improvement awards of those that come in, and we fund about 25% of the other awards. and. Then within that, um, the, the, let me just talk about the sociology program for a minute, but what well, the others are involved too. So let me talk about SBE in general. We fund major data collection efforts. We fund 90% of the general social survey, the American National Election Study, um, IPMS, the PSID, um, the Ruggles data on um, census um, and corresponding to um, school districts. So a lot of money in the budget comes straight into those huge data projects. And 
the National Science Foundation likes principal investigators also to use the data that it's putting money into. So that doesn't mean that they give preference to that. We also fund the Luxembourg Income Study, which is good for economists. A lot of people use that. But it doesn't mean that, that you know, we won't fund any other kind of data collection. But sometimes we do not want to spend all of the money in our own budgets on data collection. So when you send something to sociology, for example, you have to realize about, if a, about 30% is already going out the door for data collection. So you have to have a pretty good argument why you need to just collect these data and not have a hypothesis about what you're doing with them. So just getting data for something that you're not really going to analyze isn't all that pertinent. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, qualitative data, National Science Foundation had a, a workshop a couple years on the social science use of qualitative data. If you just give me your information, I'll send you a copy of the findings of the workshop or the discussion. It went on for days. But um, NSF does fund a lot of qualitative data, sometimes in combination with quantitative and sometimes just by itself. I'd say the people who do the most single case qualitative data work are the anthropologists. They will take a small group of people somewhere and work with those data. Um, the rest um, of the qualitative data research, as far as telling people what you, qualitative, uh, qualitative data has two problems with it. Quantitative data has two problems with it as well, but qualitative has two problems with it. One is that um, it has to be generalizable to something. So as you gather it or where you're gathering it from or something like that, um, you uh, want to be addressing some literature that would say that this is a problem within that literature, rather than I just want to go study these people because nobody has studied them yet. But what will we learn from studying those people? So that needs to, you need to build a case for that. Um, and the other is um, how you, you have the IRB challenges of how you have to protect the security of the persons. That doesn't go away in sharing your data, that, but you can de-identify people. Um, when I was in graduate school, even we, ha we learned how to de-identify people so that nobody knew specifically who you were studying and that they couldn't be traced. Um, issues of de-identifiability becoming become more complicated when you put together, especially quantitative data sets that give you different kinds of information about the same sets of people. You can pretty much figure out who the judge in you know, Athens, Ohio is if you've got the profession in there. So, Quantitative has the same kind of problems, but de-identification is important. Um, also, the protection of them. Uh, we get a lot of projects that deal with illegal immigrants, and it's big there because if the people were identified, then it could be problematic for them. Um, and anything that would make people <coughs> identifiable and put them in jeopardy. If you simply explain that, that's fine. You just have to handle the issue. But we also find that people will sometimes 
have data that are perfectly shareable, but it, it appears that it's just too much trouble to de-identify them. So they'll say, I'm not letting anybody ever look at my data until I'm dead. And so we're kind of thinking, is that the last thing you're going to hit as you, you know, go to your grave, like hit that button, release, <laughs> release my data? We have jokes, you know, through it. How's that? Okay, yeah, out it goes. I know, had it in the refrigerator and we couldn't get the data, but it really is hard if you're working across, if you're doing interdisciplinary work and you're not going to share your data with the other people on the project, it's a little hard to, to work. But I don't mean to, to hedge, you must address it. You must address why people can't look at these data. And is there not any way you can code them that people can use what you've got? And at the very minimum, you have an obligation to tell us what you did and how you handled the information. And that's your metadata. And that should be releasable so that if you study these people there and I study these people here, I know what you did. So I know whether I can improve your methods or whether I can use your methods or whatever. So you don't duck out of it by saying, I can't tell you about the people. We want to know about the data. And the other piece of that, I think, comes in with the quantitative stuff. We'll often get less so on the third cycle of data management plan. Everybody's stuff is coming in just wonderful. It really is great. But the first time and the second time through, um, when people were just getting used to it, a lot of people were saying, well, I'm using the census. I'm using the general social survey. But it's the same thing as you would think about when you're teaching a class of methods, OK? It's true that our entire class is now going to use the general social survey for this project. But you are drawing a sample. And that is your data, all right, out of this. You're not using every question on the general social survey. You may not be using the entire population. Maybe you decide you're going to just take the Hispanic population or whatever. That's your data set. That's what we mean has to be released and what we need to know about what you are using as your data set, all right? So that other people would know, oh, OK, he's already done work on the Chinese subpopulation or the um, Asian subpopulation in general or the Latino, Latina subpopulation or Hispanics in general or something. And so I can now compare my work to that person's work. And we do get a lot of methodological improvements that way. I just had. Um, Somebody talked to me about a potential project last fall when I was at meetings. And he said, you know, um, we have so much data where we have um, now broken um, it down into the subcategories of Latino, Latina, and Hispanic that we can talk about subpopulations within the United States. But we still gather so little data on the Asian population in the United States or the Asian American population in the United States that all we can say is Asian. And that's not very helpful because there are huge differences between the different groups and where they settled and where they originated from that are worth studying. So we really need to oversample on that. And so that person's making a case to just take questions that we already ask in places like the ANES and do disparate groups by using names in telephone books or names somewhere that they can trace the name to the origin and so forth. So that's why we need to know exactly what. And then when that comes in there, we'll have a better data set than we currently have, as opposed to them just sort of saying, well, I can't tell you anything about the people I'm studying. But there are certain people you have to watch out for, and also certain organizations. Craig and I are dealing with one in um, 
a country where it might be problematic. This is the students working on this, but it might be problematic if the organization that has the problems is known. So you have to figure out what to do with that. Now, does that help? It's, it's your data. You know, what are your data? What's your data set? Okay, has this been useful? All right, well, you know where to find me, the National Science Foundation, and um, social, if you just phone. I know our websites are intimidating and sometimes not very good, but just be persistent. But honestly, call your sponsored research office and say, how do I get in touch with the head of the political science program? You know, Brian doesn't seem to be answering the phone. Eric seems to have gone out for lunch, and I can't find Peter who can help me on this. And so our, uh, we have two um, sets of people that work with us routinely. Some are the um, administrative staff. They're usually who you get when you answer the phone. They are so much better on so many things than any of us are because they've been there a long time. Most of us rotate in and out. But um, you'll get Ms. Smith, Ms. Um, Spicer, um, and others um, who are enormously helpful or can direct you where you need to go. And the other group that's very helpful, and this is something I think those of you who are faculty or even graduate students here might be interested in, we have a cadre of people referred to as science assistants. And they're people who usually um, have gotten their master's degree and want a break. And they're deciding whether or not to go on and get a PhD or whether or not to go on in a specific discipline. And they want to learn a little bit more about what's going on in that discipline. So um, they would be people your age, um, and they do an awful lot for us. They can tell, they can do literature, literature reviews very quickly and find out, you know, if you're, if you're using proper bibliography, if you're citing it. They help us in all kinds of ways. But it's also a good job if you are advising students who seem to be a little uncertain about what they want to do next. I would say it doesn't hurt for them to spend maximum two years is all you get at the National Science Foundation as a science assistant. Um, we have five or six of them. They're a tight little group themselves. They work for us. They work with each other on projects related to the directorate. So they might be doing analyses of the different kinds of projects that um, do pertain to sustainability across all the disciplines. And I think it's a great opportunity. I didn't even know it existed until I went there. And I thought, there are a lot of people I could have sent there for the two years, and they would have enjoyed it. So you can be right out of college, or you can have started a program. So I think one of them is now coming into our political science program so, as a PhD uh, student. I could, I could go check this, but policy science awards, is that for um, faculty or graduate students? The policy science award is usually um, faculty. That's it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing a graduate student is eligible for is the dissertation award. Yes, yeah, to pay for your time. Or if, you're, if, you're, if your university gets its act together or your department and applies for IGERTs, you could get those. So. I once submitted years ago to IGERT, and the problem I had was, but I, I don't know, I mean, I didn't really follow it up and pursue it endlessly, but um, the problem I had was that I was trying to knit together a group of people in political science and sociology, and the review panel that there really wasn't a lot of difference between them, even though there's some. And sort of like, my guess about it with the Iger is that the, the further the dis, dis, disciplines are apart, probably advantages the proposal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I think that's probably true. But um, I see the OSU, unless it's changed since I was around more. 
but um, we're, we're funding a lot of university-wide interdisciplinary projects, right, that multi, uh, resulted in centers. I think each of those centers could have had an IGERT. I don't know why not. They have people from multiple disciplines, I think. So, you know. Does that mean Rashawn could have an IGERT? Well, <laughs> probably it could, would be easier to do it in tandem with, since we tend to be close to science. Right. right. Something that kind of looks like another version of close to science. Kind of. I don't the person who. We do, well, and I, yeah, I should not have left out history. The head of our division, Myron Gutman, is a historian. Um, I mean, the head of the whole social, behavioral, and economic sciences is a historian. And there's an awful lot of historical data, and a, a lot of people put in history projects from history. But the head of the IGERTS is actually um, the political scientist. Brian Humes is the head of IGERTS, so it's not a bad idea while he's the head of Igerts to inquire. Because he, you know, he looks through all the proposals and sends them out for review and can be helpful about what's been funded. But I think those are good to have. Yeah, I think in this application probably a, a joint center type initiative would right. likely get a better review. Because I would assume that Igerts is pretty highly comparable to Evans. Right. Right. I looked one day, though, at those kinds of fundings that go across, um, like Igert being one, but um, research un research and undergraduate institution mm -hmm. awards, and even REUs, which are just attached to your own grant or something you do in the summer. And I took one other one, and I just plotted them geographically. The geographers would be glad to know about that. And the center of the country does not ask, does not get, does not ask for those things. They're all clustered on both coasts, which was sort of surprising to me. There would be like one in Michigan that was like a RUI. And some of that is simply not asking, not knowing about it, and not. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe that's the only bonus of the state um, budget's shrinking is that people will look elsewhere. Our budget also has shrunk. If people ask you, we're working on the 2010 budget still, with the 2010 budget, I should say. That still doesn't mean we don't fund people. And remember, every time we can hook to one of these initiatives, that's extra money. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. Thank you all for coming. If you have individual questions, I'm happy to talk to you. Or you can contact me. Two pages or a phone call are fine. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>